Yeah, a few years ago, there was, uh, what was it, like four or five years ago, there was a, a blackout at the Super Bowl. And so the lights went off in the stadium, so there was like a half-hour delay. And they came back from commercial, and there's everybody on the side doing hamstring stretch, like static hamstring stretches. And I'm just like, oh, my God. You know, here you are, you're at the, the supposed to be the pinnacle of, of this sport, and yet here we are doing static hamstring stretching and, and static groin stretches. And you're just like, you're going to get out there and, and it's not going to go well for you. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. If you're wanting to learn about tendons from a performance point of view or from a rehabilitation point of view, there's only one person to go to, and that's Keith Barr. And that is the reason that I got Keith on for this episode today. So in this episode, we dive into some really common conversations that I'm seeing either online or with podcast guests, and that's around stiffness, stiffness versus compliance in the tendon, but also in the muscle as well. So some really interesting conversations around that and how it affects the rehabilitation, how it affects dynamic movements such as sprinting and jumping. But also in this episode, we have a little chat around static stretching and some of the traditions that still ring true, are still still around in professional sport and how they're affecting our ability to reduce injuries. So if you're interested in developing performance or reducing injuries, which pretty much covers 99.9% of strength and conditioning coaches and sports scientists out there, This episode with Keith Barr is an absolute winner. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics Force Plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating Force Plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics Force Plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Keith Barr. Keith Barr, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. I'm ready to be absolutely schooled. I'm prepared I've waited, waited, <laughs> I've waited all day for it, but I think I'm, I'm prepared. But I'm going to start off with just asking you a little bit about you. So what, what, do you, what are you doing at the minute? What have you done previously? Just give people a bit of a brief, a brief intro to you. 
Sure. So, so I started all of this. Uh, I went to college to become a physical education teacher uh, and then decided along the way that maybe there's something more interesting or at least something that I could be a little bit more creative with. And, and one of the things that I started doing was I started looking at uh, kind of how exercise is shaping our, our musculoskeletal system. And so I had begun as an undergrad as a strength coach at the University of Michigan with the football team there. We had a 6,000 square foot weight room and it was a spectacular place to, to learn the practical aspects of strength and conditioning. And then I went on to do a master's at Berkeley, a PhD at the University of Illinois, where I had discovered um, one of the molecular targets of strength training. So when you do strength training, you activate this protein complex called mTOR complex one. And that was my PhD was to discover that the first couple of uh, papers in that in that pathway is as uh, as a potential way that strength training was increasing your your muscle mass and strength and then i went on to work at the do a postdoc at washington university in st louis with john halsey who was the father of endurance exercise physiology and there i discovered that um, that endurance exercise activated this gene called pgc1 alpha and and that that was probably driving a lot of the mitochondrial adaptations that we get with our endurance exercise and then you know, went to Michigan and then off and I did a had got my first job at the at the University of Dundee in Scotland. And there what we did is we expanded some of the work that we had started at Michigan, looking at the function of tendon. And one of the things that we had discovered um, along the way was how to how to engineer tendons. So how to make tendons in a dish and keep them under total control so we could control the entire environment so that we could really learn what is it that they're trying to respond to? What are the things within there that, that they that alter the tendon or ligaments structure and function? And so we've been continuing that work over the last 10 years, um, looking at how different types of load can either drive tendon pathology or it can correct tendon pathology just by changing the type of load that we're putting onto the tissue. And so, you know, a lot of that work is being driven now by um, some really outstanding PhD students. And, you know, we'll get into it over the course of our discussion about the types of things that they're working on and the, and the cool stuff that we're discovering. And is that a Lester Tigers shirt I can see in the background? That is. They were nice enough to, to, to give that to me after doing some professional development for them. So I was very, I, I do... It is quite nice. It's a spectacular little one. So it is. It does look nice there in the background. I must. I must admit. So, what was it like in Dundee? That was outstanding. It was. Yeah. How long were you there? It was five years. It was kid and candy store type of thing because it's the best place in Europe to do molecular biology. And so I had all of these people around me who had discovered parts of the pathways that I was studying. So, oh, I wonder if this. Oh yeah, I've got a mouse that. That where I've knocked that out and you can go ahead and use it. So I got to do incredible research that I would never have gotten to do anywhere else in the world. And it also helped me because that was where I started working with a bunch of the professional um, teams where, where now you start to apply what you're learning in the laboratory to really look at, you know, elite athletic performance. So based on your experience, I'm going to put a big question to you to start with to kick us right off. So in terms of injury rates, why why are injury rates still on the rise? Yeah, that's a great question and it's the core of what we're what what we're looking at. And so what I think is best to do here is to to take a look. Well, the first reason is that cuz we get paid or you know, athletic trainers, strength coaches, all of these performance people, they get paid on performance. Um, and a lot of performance is down to maximizing um, properties of the musculoskeletal system that actually puts you at an increased risk for injury. And so what is the delicacy and what's the real art of performance science is to balance performance against, um, against injury rate. Because as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to shift more towards injury rate. I'm going to decrease injury rate because if I decrease injury rate, my athletes are going to have more time in practice. They're going to be able to have more sessions. They're going to be trained more frequently. And over time, they will progressively get better. 
The problem is many coaches and performance directors don't have the that long view because their job is going to be determined in the next six months. So if they don't win now, they're not going to be there long enough to have the opportunity to see the benefits of what they put in place. And, and so a lot of times what we're doing is we're making short-term decisions when we really need to look at long-term progression. And so it's the job of the club to look at the long-term goals and it's a job and as a result it should actually we should be separating much more the performance staff who are preparing the players for 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 their you know to to perform their best from the coaching staff the people who are actually trying to give them the strategies and trying to give them the skills what we need is the performance staff should be part of the medical staff that should be almost independent where they're there strictly to keep the athletes healthy and strong. And then it's the job of the coaches to take that strong, healthy athlete and to, and to get the performance, the best performance they can from them. It, while we still have this system where everybody is judged and the coach is going to bring in his own performance team and all of these things, we're going to still have this cycle. One quote that I saw recently was a guy called John Mitchell, who's over in Australia. I think he works with a rugby union, I'm thinking. I've just written the quote down here. Coaches are more concerned, often more concerned with injury versus underperformance. And that was from a UKCA talk. I just wanted to get your, get your thoughts on that. Does that kind of back up what you've just said and, and explained? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so what we get in the United States is we have this... You know, outstanding system in college where we've got the NCAA. So we've got all of these colleges. So we get this huge number of athletes that are performing at a very high level. That's why we have um, a real advantage for some of the smaller sports in the Olympics because we just have this huge pool because you get to go to college for free if you're an elite tennis player or soccer player, you know, all of these different things. But what we've got is a system where we've got a strength coach whose only concern is to get them their maximum performance. They get them stronger, they get them higher performance. Then the athlete invariably gets injured. They go to the athletic trainer. The athletic trainer trains them differently, gets them healthy, sends them back to the strength coach. The strength coach does. And it's just this continuing circle that until we learn that it's all one system, we're going to continue to have this cycle and that cycle is really going to do to the athlete, which is to rob them of, of a lot of time in their career. Interesting. So we kicked off with that big question, but I want to dive down into, into tendons and, and spend probably the next next hour into, uh, into that rabbit hole, if that's all right. But to kick us off, a, a dumbass guide, as I described it earlier, about the role of the tendon, the function, and how they actually adapt if that's all right. Sure. So, cool. so I think the best thing to do is to start off by looking at tendons and ligaments because these two things are, are often grouped together. And they're, the reason that they're grouped together is they're structurally very similar. They're at least 70% type 1 collagen, and that collagen is supposed to be aligned along the line of force. In a ligament, you've got more than one direction of force sometimes, so you get maybe a little bit different alignment than you would do in a tendon. And what we've got in these structures are collagen protein, and that collagen protein is cross-linked together, and that cross-linking is going to alter the stiffness of the structure. So the stiffness of your tendons ligaments is, is down to how much collagen you have, what direction the collagen is going, and how cross-linked the collagen is. And so when you have a ligament, what a ligament's job is to do is to keep a joint from being lax. So it's to keep a joint really sturdy. And so the stiffer your ligaments are, the better, because you don't want movement within the joint. An example is if we increase the laxity of the, of the knee joint so that there's 1.3 millimeters of extra give in the ACL, we have a fourfold increase in the rate of ACL rupture. So anything that's going to give us small changes in ligament stiffness or laxity of the joint is going to be bad. And so a ligament, we want it to be as stiff as possible. And that's because it's going to connect two bones together. And the two bones are going to be super stiff. If we look at a tendon, the real difference between a tendon and a ligament is, is its uh, very basic property. A tendon is attaching a muscle to a bone. And so that means on one end, it's 
attaching something very compliant or stretchy. And on the other end, it's got something stiff. And if you were to give an engineer a job of attaching something that's really stretchy to something that's really stiff and hard, they would have night sweats because this is the exact thing that is the most difficult thing to do uh, as far as engineering that structure. And so the tendon is a unique, um, an, a unique tissue in the fact that on one end it's stretchy and on the other end it's stiff. And so it's a variable mechanical tissue. That means that the stiffer your tendon is not always the best option. Whereas in the stiffer the ligament, the best option, always stiffer. Stiffness is better. Tendon, it's a little bit different because it has to connect that, that compliant muscle. If it's too stiff, if it's stiffer than the muscle is strong, that's when we get non-contact muscle pulls. All right? So we can see the difference and the importance of this stiffness property if we just compare female athletes to male athletes. Because we said that as stiff as possible is great for the ligament. Well, we know that women playing the same sport have a four to eight times higher rate of ACL rupture. That's telling us something about the laxity of the, of the ligaments, that they're less stiff than the men. But they also have 80% fewer non-contact muscle pulls. So what that's telling us is that when the stiffness is low, we get ACL ruptures. When the stiffness is, is low, we get fewer muscle pulls. In contrast, when the stiffness is high, fewer ACL, fewer ligament problems, and more muscle pulls. And obviously, as a strength or a performance person or a manager, you want to have muscle pulls over ACLs every day. But at the same time, you don't. You also want to try and eliminate those muscle pulls as much as you can. And that's where the that's where the intricacies of of tendon, ligament, and and this muscle tendon unit science really take off. Because to train such that you've got stiff tissues for your ligaments, but you can modulate the tendon stiffness by using your exercise, that's really where we get all of the, you're, that's where you're making your living if you're a performance or a strength coach. I'll make, make sure I would give you time for drinky tea as well, Keith. Um, but we'll, come on, we'll come on to the training of the tendon in a second, but I just want to kind of go a, bit, a little bit deeper on the, well, the basics really. Um, so the role of the tendon in, in dynamic performance, such as sprinting and jumping, something that's discussed probably daily um, wherever, in, your, in your life, as well as um, sports performance experts as well. So would you give us a bit of, a, a bit of an overview of that too? Absolutely. So, so the way that this goes is, is that my, so my definition of a tendon is it's something that's there to protect a muscle from injury. From, from the standpoint of a performance person, it's there to transmit force as quickly as possible. Okay, so, so the stiffer a tendon is, the faster I can transmit the force being produced by the muscle to the bone. And that's gonna increase performance. So really what I wanna do with my tendons for performance is I wanna have them as stiff as possible. And the reason for that is that if you, take, if you think of a weight on your desk and you attach a, a rubber band or elastic band or a stretchy band and you pull on the stretchy band, what's going to happen is it's going to stretch and the weight's not going to move. And that's really what would happen if you have hyperlaxity. If you have really stretchy tendons, you pull on that, you pull on that tendon and the bone, which is our weight on our desk, doesn't move. If you now switch that to a, to a rope that's a, braided, uh, that's a braided material, as you pull on it, it's still going to stretch a little bit, but because it's a lot stiffer than the stretchy band, now as you pull on it, it stretches a little bit and then the weight moves. But if I instead have a, a steel rod there, as soon as I pull on the steel rod, now that, now that bone or that, that weight on my desk is going to move immediately. That's basically what we talk about when we talk about rate of force development. When we talk about rate of force development, what we're saying is how quickly can we get from the message from your brain to the contraction of the muscle to the movement of the bone. And that last bit, the contraction of the muscle to the movement of the bone, that's where your tendon stiffness comes in. If you want to perform at your best, ideally you want that tendon to be as stiff as possible. But again, the way that you do that is you're going to increase stiffness and then the stiffness of the muscle, sorry, the stiffness of the tendon, if it gets stiffer than the muscle is strong, now what you're going to do is you're going to have muscle injury. 
So this is where we're trying to balance these two things out. We're trying to balance the performance side where the higher the stiffness, the better for performance with the potential for injury side, which is the higher the if my tendon is stiffer than my muscle is strong, I'm going to I'm going to get a non-contact muscle pull. And so that's really where, you know, again, that's really where our performance people are, our performance scientists are, are, are earning their, their money. So how do we know as sports performance practitioners if it, it if we're getting that balance right? Obviously, before we get the injury, ideally. So, again, what what you would do is if you're at a max performance sport, like you're a track and field, and you can do everything where you're you just have to be your best for you know for that one event. Then what you do is you practice that, and that means in a non-world championship, non-non-Olympic championship year, you actually push yourself to the point where you get a non-contact non muscle pull, because that what that's done is that's told you, okay, in this individual, what is my ratio of fast movements to slow movements or heavy movements that is going to optimize their performance, and then where am I going to get to that point where if I pushed it too far, I'm going to get a pull. Now, once I know that, now I can go back and I can program knowing that in the past, this is where we've been. So now what I can do is that once we get up towards that level, now I can manipulate training to keep us as close to that without, over, without overcoming that. In a situation like uh, team sport, where you've got a whole bunch of people, what you're going to find is that's going to be extraordinarily difficult because each individual has a different set point. And so if you've got a, a whole team, first of all, they don't have all the tra same training load because everybody is going to have positional differences. Second of all, they've got different genetics, which makes them either more prone or less prone to injury. And so what you've got is you've got a real, you've got to really break it down to individualize the, the training and the performance-based work for each individual athlete, if possible. Mm -hmm. And then what I was actually speaking to Alex Natera on in the build up to um to, to me speaking to you here today and one thing that he brought up was it was a question which i'm sure you'll get probably again all the time but how stiff is is stiff enough and i'd like to get your, your thoughts on that as well again it, this comes down to what is your what's your performance so if you're if you're in rugby union and you're one of the big guys and you're just have to be in there and you have to absorb a lot of force and you have to be able to to you know exert and absorb force you don't need to be extraordinarily stiff and those people are going to be what you would say is as you know i like to talk to to manual therapists physical therapists athletic therapists who are hands-on they'll tell you that there's two types of athletes there's the muscular athlete and then there's the stiff athlete and and just by touching them they can they know what type of athlete if you've got the big the big huge guys so in in american football it's the linemen so they're big huge linemen these 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 guys are you know for us it's like six six um you know about 110 120 kilos so they're they're big and what they're doing is they're absorbing force i don't need much stiffness in that athlete i need stiffness for the people who are going to have high-end speed have to jump super high, any of these ballistic movement performances, that's where I need stiffness. And in that situation, what you want is you want the stiffness that's necessary to perform the movement, but no more. It's just like flexibility. I don't want somebody to be so flexible that they're now hyperlax and they're gonna increase the risk for injury again. So injury rate and stiffness is a U-shaped curve. So if you are very unflexible, there's a high injury rate. If you are very, very flexible, there's a high injury rate. And in between, you're gonna get into this kind of shallow area where, yeah, you're at the optimal flexibility, you're at the optimal stiffness, your injury rate is relatively low, your performance is relatively high. How do I have a quantitative way to say this is it? What I would do, the best thing that we have found so far is to use stuff like um, like counter movement jumps or other things and look at the slopes of the eccentric um, of the eccentric impulse. So this is the rate of force development eccentrically. And if you're going down and up and you can look and you're seeing big changes in that slope, what that's telling you is that like if you're increasing the slope, that means you're getting stiffer. And as you get stiffer, you're going to find that you're going to get to a point where you're going to get a, a non-contact muscle pull.
that for you is now going to tell you where you should be. Again, what we don't have yet in elite athletics or especially in non-elite athletics is any type of quantitative measures that say, here's us tracking it over time. Oh, look, we pick up an, you, you picked up an injury when you got to this point. This other athlete picked up an injury when they got even less of a slope change. So that means you're more resilient. You can do more high stiffness work. This person's less resilient. You can do less. So what we do is we use injury history a lot of times. And when I get an athlete who's got an injury history that's very long, that's got lots of non-contact muscle pulls, now what that's going to do is that's going to train, that's going to change how I'm going to train them. Because I don't want you to be the fastest player on the team and play two, two matches over a season. I want you to be the, the top five fastest players on the team and play every match in the season. And so, so that's where I'm going to shift the way that I'm going to train to try and maximize or optimize your performance. Again, I'm giving you a break for your tea. Got to be drinking. <laughs> so in terms of individual differences, is, the, is, the, is it a huge, uh, is it a huge range? Oh yeah. There's a massive range. So, and you know that just by, just by you've had experience with athletic teams. Mm -hmm. So either, either a rugby team, a, a track and field team, you've got a soccer team. There's going to be those two or three guys who've pulled their muscle every year. They, it's like, Oh my God. Yep. They, he yawned, he pulled a muscle, you know, <laughs> it's that kind of every time. And then there's going to be people who they're a little bit slower they actually can accelerate a little bit better. So they're, they're better to decelerate, accelerate, but they're really bad at their high-end speed. Those people tend to be more resilient as far as these non-contact muscle pulls. The people who are the fastest people at the top end speed, those are the ones, and they have a really hard time slowing down and speeding up because their muscle, again, what we're looking at there is the muscle is gonna overcome inertia. So your acceleration, deceleration, that's your muscle base. So, and then your connective tissue is going to allow you to continue and to move at, at a high, at as high a speed as possible. So if you're really good at high end speed, but not so good at acceleration, deceleration, that's going to tell me that you're going to be much more likely to get a, a non-contact muscle pull. If you're really good at acceleration, deceleration, I'm going to guess that you've not had a lot of, a lot of non-contact muscle pulls. And again, that's just, that goes with it. But then you, you, you put on top of that, George McConey's done some, did some beautiful work almost, uh, like almost 15 years ago. And he identified two genes, but it's now expanded to more like seven or eight genes that predispose individuals for, for, um, tendinopathies and other, and other matrix based problems. So he had discovered that collagen five was associated with, there's a mute, there's a, there's a change in the collagen five sequence. And when you have that collagen five um, uh, sequence change, you're much more likely to suffer an injury than somebody who doesn't. Um, it's the same thing for a gene called tenacin C. So there's a number of different genes that are that actually predispose an athlete for in for matrix-based injuries. So that's tendon and ligament injuries. And if you have those, they're probably also going to predispose you for some of these non-contact muscle pulls. Because what it's going to do is it's going to change the stiffness of the matrix. But it's also going to make you really good at performance. <laughs> a minute ago, you talked about flexibility and this this U-shaped curve. If if people want to be at that at that dip at the bottom and want to and want to make sure that they stay there in terms of building that flexibility, but not becoming hypermobile, what what would be your recommendations? Yeah. So, so what we do is we, for our, our flexibility, for our range of motion type of work, what we're doing is we're not doing any kind of static based stretching because that's not ideal as far as, as far as how we're activating the system. So what you do, so there's a bunch of physical properties that these tissues have that tendon has specifically, but that matrix has in general. And, and those are these viscoelastic properties. So that means that the tendon is going to, it's going to behave both like, but like a liquid and like a, an elastic solid. And that's really important for us as a performance measure, because the faster you move, the stiffer a viscoelastic surface becomes. So if I've got a viscoelastic tissue, 
if I go fast, it becomes stiffer. So we can do these tests in our laboratory where we've got a machine that's just going to pull and it can pull at different rates. And what you can do is you can watch it and it pulls super fast. It's going to break earlier, but it's going to have really good stiffness in the tissue. If I pull it really slowly, it's going to stretch a lot further and it's not going to take as much force and it's going to be much less stiff. So if I pull and I hold on a tissue like a tendon, you get creep, which means I've pulled it and then it's going to slowly come back down. And that's fine and that's what you get with static stretching. What we want to do that's slightly different is we want to actually continue to maintain the load on the tendon while we're getting this kind of creep. And that's called stress relaxation instead of creep. The difference is that when we do stress relaxation, we're using um, muscle contraction to continuously load the tendon. All right. When we're doing uh, when we're doing creep, we just go into a position where the where the muscle tendon unit is longer, and we just hold it there, and eventually it slowly slowly relaxes. But there's no tension across it, and so the tension of the whole system goes down together. When you use a muscle contraction to do that, now what you're doing is you're allowing the tendon to continue to get a load across it, but because the tendon is slowly relaxing, the strong parts of the collagen are relaxing, now what you're getting is you're getting a signal from the muscle and a signal from the tendon that, that correspond to each other. The tendon feels load, the muscle is creating load. When we do a static stretch, what we're getting is we're getting a disparate uh, signal from the two uh, tissues. One, the tendon is under load, but the muscle is not under load. There's no contractility, and so what you get is you get this, this almost... Um, counterintuitive to the to the two sensors within our musculoskeletal system the golgi tendon organ and the muscle spindle those are changing in two different ways and so that's potentially giving us mixed signals that could potentially you know increase injury rate and the example i give is is our ncaa um, athletes so the athletes where you think okay if you were to think of uh, an athlete who should have really stretchy tendons, you would think probably of gymnasts. And you would think that these gymnasts are really super flexible. Well, two years ago, 17 NCAA gymnasts ruptured their Achilles tendon. And so it's not about, and so they've done lots and lots of passive stretching. They've done lots of holds. A lot of coaches actually have them sleep in those those um, little devices that hold the toe back so that they get more flexibility in the Achilles. And yet here they are rupturing their Achilles faster than any or more than any other um, than any other um, athlete group. And it's likely because they're doing that passive movement and that passive movement isn't increasing flexibility. What it's doing is it's changing the Golgi tendon organ reflex. And so slowly over time, the Golgi tendon says, oh yeah, this kind of stretch on the tendon or this kind of load on the tendon is normal. So it doesn't have that really quick reflex that's going to assist you at, at protecting your musculoskeletal system. So, so why is it that when I turn on TV on a Saturday to watch Premier League football, <laughs> am I seeing players still static stretching? Just purely tradition? Yeah. Okay. We've always done it this way. Yeah. This is what we're going to do. Yeah, a few years ago, there was, uh, what was it, like four or five years ago, there was a, a blackout at the Super Bowl. And so the lights went off in the stadium, so there was like a half-hour delay. And they came back from commercial, and there's everybody on the side doing hamstring stretch, like static hamstring stretches. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, my God. You know, here you are. You're at the, the supposed to be the pinnacle of, of this sport. And yet here we are doing static hamstring stretching and, and static groin stretches. And you're just like, you're going to get out there and, and it's not going to be, it's not going to go well for you. So it's just the way that it's always been. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Keith. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we continued the chat around isometric training and its benefit for tendon health and tendon performance. Then we also finish off with some principles for rehabbing tendon injuries. So if you if you are working with athletes that do pick up these kind of injuries, stick around to the end because of some really important points from Keith. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. 
Blackbox are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Blackbox manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Blackbox, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at blackboxfitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognised qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit stantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now we'll get back to the episode with Keith. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the training the tendon. Isometric training and the, the episodes that I've done on isometric training with Alex or various other people have been some of the most popular episodes that I've done or that they've contributed to. So it's a huge topic at the minute. But isometric training for training the tendon, where's where's your head at with that? So so the first thing is anytime you load the tendon, isometric, eccentric, concentric muscle work, the tendon gets the same signal if the tendon is, is happy. If it's a healthy tendon, doesn't matter how you train it. So Katia Hennemeyer uh, out of Michael Kerr's group has a beautiful paper where they do, they do eccentric loads, they do isometric and they do concentric loads. They take out the tendon, they take out the muscle. The muscle, the genetic response varies based on the type of load. The tendon, it doesn't vary. Okay, so that all that means is that you could do any of them on a healthy tendon. And so that's the important thing. If your tendon is perfectly healthy, no problems at all. You can train however you want. You can do lots of ballistic movements. You can do whatever, whatever isometric, eccentric, concentric movements you want. The, the difference appears when you get some sort of injury to the tendon. Because when you have an injury to the tendon, now what you get is you get that section of the tendon doesn't get loaded when we do normal dynamic loading. We have a paper that should be coming out in the next little bit where my PhD student, Danielle, has taken in, and we've put a biopsy punch to, to put a hole in the middle of a rat patellar tendon. So right in the middle, just like you would see in a lot of kind of chronic patellar tendinopathy, it's a central core tendon injury right up near the patella. And then what she's done is we've, we've waited 15 days for that to form this tendinopathic tissue. And interestingly, the genes that we see expressed in that tendinopathic tissue look exact, are the exact same ones that we see in human tendinopathic tendons. So, so the rat tendon is modeling that human tendinopathy. 
When we then do either four isometric loads, and these are overcoming isometrics that are held for 30 seconds, so they're very long isometrics with two minutes of rest in between, or we do um, the exact same time under tension matched and length of time of, of, of loading matched dynamic movements. So they're one third of a second, and we give one third of a second dynamic contractions to the muscle or to the tendon. When we take out that tendon, we look at the genes that are expressed. The one that did the isometric loading has the expression of tendon. So we see tendon-specific markers go up. We see collagen one go up. In the one that had the dynamics, uh, the dynamic contractions on it, so it's dynamically loaded, and it's a central core tendinopathy, we actually see genes going up that are more similar to what you would see in fibrocartilage, compression-like genes. Because as you pull it really quickly, what we get is we get stress shielding around the injured area. And as we get that stress shielding, because the tendon is, it's a, what we call an isovolumetric tissue. That means as I stretch it, I've made it longer. So in order to make it longer and keep the same volume, it has to get skinnier. So as I pull it up, if there's a hole in the middle, the sides are then compressing the middle. And if there's no tensional load because it's been disconnected from the tension above and below, now you've only got a compressive force. You no longer have a tensional force. So the reason that isometrics become important in that situation is because as I pull and I hold at that longer, skinnier um, length, what's happening is the sides of the tendon, where the, it's still healthy, are relaxing, just like we said with creep or with stress relaxation. And now what happens is the whole tendon becomes less stiff because I'm holding it there and there's a decrease in the, in the tension within the tendon. And as it becomes less stiff, I actually get tensional load through the injured area of the tissue. And when it feels that tensional load, now it knows, oh, I should be a tendon and I should express these genes and it starts making those genes. But when we just dynamically load and we do these faster movements, we don't see that. And so that's when it becomes important to use isometrics for a tendon. You can use, and I know track athletes who use what they call isometrics for very short, so like two second or 0.2 second isometrics, where they're just going to go up as hard as they can, hold it and drop. For me, that doesn't really count as an isometric because yes, the joint hasn't necessarily changed its length, but the muscle has shortened because it's taken up the tension within the tendon. So there's beautiful work out of the University of Calgary that shows that if you do an isometric load, what's, or, which means that you keep the joint at the same angle, the muscle is shortening, the tendon is lengthening. And that makes sense to most of us because, yeah, you can see if I go and I isometrically load my bicep, my bicep becomes bigger. That's what a bodybuilder does, isometric, load, isometric and they, they flex their biceps. Well, if it's happening that way, that means that the muscle is shortening, even though the, the elbow joint in our, in our bodybuilder example isn't shortening. So you've got a shortening of the muscle. So it's, the muscle is still contracting concentrically, but the joint isn't changing. So the really short isometrics, as people call them, aren't necessarily isometrics in the way that the muscle, in the way that we're thinking of muscle intended. What I'm thinking of when I say isometrics are long isometrics, and the, I use them as a way to induce what's called stress relaxation, which is basically as you pull on the tendon, the strongest parts of the tendon relax, and, and you see that as a decrease in the tension within the tendon, and that decrease in tension within the tendon gets to a, a, its low point around 30 seconds. So about 30 seconds of an isometric hold on a tendon, the tendon's tension will have gone down about 45%. So that the tendon will have stretched and it'll just the tension within there has gone down a huge amount. If I go all the way out to three minutes, it won't have gone down much more than another 5%. That's why I use that 30 seconds because it kind of gets to the, to the nadir of, of tension. When you're doing a 10 second isometric, you're gonna get some of that, but it's not gonna be as complete a uh, uh, as complete a relaxation. You can get other things that are really important. People use them to overcome, like when people have issues with um, where they feel like they can't increase the weight and they're a strength athlete, they can use isometrics as a way to kind of 
take advantage of the fact that we're stronger in the isometric than we are in the concentric. And now we can slowly overcome and build through, um, build through stopping points within our progression. So people can use them for a whole bunch of other things, but for the tendon component, we're using it for that stress relaxation at that 30 second time point. So what does overcoming mean in terms of an example of an exercise and what alternatives are there to overcoming? Perfect. So, so what we're going to do is a lot of people, they, the classic one is a leg extension machine, which I know people, the, those are the machines that people have to go and find them on eBay because nobody's <laughs> used them in 40 years. But a lot of people just take it, put the weight at the bottom, kick out as hard as they can and basically hold it for 30 seconds. What I tend to do is I tend to give people a yoga strap. I gave them a handheld dynamometer, which is, you know, we, there's some that are sold from San Diego that are like a hundred bucks. So that's a really good tool because basically now I can have you kick out against that yoga strap onto that, um, onto that handheld dynamometer. It'll go to your phone and it'll show you how hard you're pushing for 30 seconds and it'll time you for 30 seconds and you just keep it that way. Or you can do like a hamstring curl. And all it is, is that you're in an, you're in a position you are trying to overcome the weight and you're not and the weight is is not yielding so so basically the weight is more than you could lift and as a result an overcoming isometric is you're always trying to overcome the weight but it's never but you're not strong enough to do it and usually you do it from the from the um from the longest position of the muscle so the from the greatest muscle length um, so if you're t thinking of a hamstring curl, it's, it's a straight leg uh, position where you're about to pull in. If you're doing an, a leg extension, the knee is at 70-ish percent and you're trying to push it out as hard as you can. Um, and so, so that's the overcoming isometric. The yielding isometric is, again, you're going to, a lot of times what we'll do with this one is we'll push up a weight on the leg press with two feet. And it's a weight that you can lift with two, but you can't lift with one and it's really heavy for one. And then you take away one and, it, and you're just trying to hold it there and you're not trying to yield. Okay, so you're basically, again, what we like to do with most of our isometrics when we're trying to get tendon and muscle working um, optimally is that we found that if you can add, if you can uh, get to high force without a lot of jerk, which means that you're not moving the weight abruptly. So when you're doing the overcoming isometric, you don't kick out as hard as you can immediately. What you're gonna do is you're gonna develop force over about a two second period where you're slowly raising force. You're gonna hold that maximal force and you're gonna let it off easily. If you're doing that, that's what we call a low jerk isometric. And that's really what we're looking for for isometrics. We want them to be in a long muscle length because it seems like, and again, I have a PhD student who's gonna, who's gonna specifically look at what the muscle length should be during these isometrics for optimal tendon health. But from some of the, some of the clinical work that we've done, we've found that an, a longer muscle length actually has a better outcome for both the muscle and the tendon. And again, you just think of it as that that's usually where, um, when you're at a longer muscle length, that means that the stretch on the system is going to be the greatest. Is there any different any difference in terms of adaptation muscle tendon in the two types of isometrics that you just described? Um, nobody's done the experiments yet, to be honest. So, so we're we're early days with this um, as far as experimentally how how these types of of loads actually affect both the muscle and the tendon. Um, the tendon. What we're, what we're focusing on is this stress relaxation component, but it could be that there's other things happening there. Because the other thing that we're doing is we're actually producing a very high force movement with, or high force contraction with the muscle, and that's gonna stimulate the matrix of the muscle as well as the muscle to get stronger. One of the reasons that we use heavy strength training in our training what, for every single athlete that we work with is because that heavy strength training is gonna make the muscle stronger. And if you go back to the beginning, we said that injury to the muscle happens when the tendon is stiffer than the muscle is strong. So if I make the muscle stronger, now the, the likelihood of me getting a, a muscle pull is going to go down. And you saw that, um, you know, last year at, after the Champions League final, when they showed all these pictures of, of the guys from Bayern Munich and they were all these big hulking people. 
a lot of the reasons that you're doing strength training is to make sure that the muscle is stronger than the, the, than the tendon is stiff. I listened to your podcast with Joel Smith. I can't remember how long ago it was. Um, and you talked about um, fast and slow training and the benefits of both, why you'd include both. Would you mind just touching on that for us? Yeah, sure. So, so what, what we've got is that, as I said, a tendon is what we call a variable mechanical tissue. That means on the muscle end, it's stretchy and on the bone end, it's stiff. And the way that we maintain that, that muscle, that muscle end compliance is through our activity. And we know this because we did a study in, in rodents where we actually cut the nerve to the muscle so the muscle couldn't contract anymore. So that's the same thing that would happen if you put yourself in a boot or if you had a lot of time off or you're, you're sitting for a long time. And then what, what we found is that whereas on a normal animal we see the muscle end of the tendons really compliant and the bone ends really stiff, after we cut the nerve and we let them not be able to load it for five weeks, the muscle end of the tendon was just as stiff as the bone end of the tendon. And so what we think are, is happening there is that there's some beautiful work by, um, by uh, Talia Volk that showed that if you look, what she showed was that if you look at the muscle end of the tendon, you have fewer crosslinks than the bone end of the tendon. And so what we think is happening is that as you load with a heavy weight, and when we say a heavy weight, it's not about the heavy weight, it's about the slowness of the movement. Again, when we're talking to athletic trainers, they're always like, well, we have to do slow lengthening contractions because that fixes tendinopathy. It's not about the slow lengthening contractions. It's about the slow. It's, and when we do heavy concentric work, that by definition, a heavier weight force velocity relationship means you're doing it slower. So we want a heavy weight for two reasons. One is it's going to make the muscle stronger. The second reason is that it's going to allow us to break cross links within the muscle into the tendon. Because as you move more slowly, those, because it's a viscoelastic tissue, as we talked about before, that means that the collagen molecules within the tendon are gonna actually slide past each other. And it might not be individual molecules, it might be fascicles, because the interfascicular area is really active within a tendon. And so a tendon has this really interesting organization where it goes from fibrils to fibers, to fascicles to the whole tendon and those fascicles can slide past each other as well as some of the fibers sliding and when that happens we break cross links between the adjacent fibers or fibrils or fascicles and as we break cross links the cross links make it stiffer so when we break them it becomes less stiff so when we do heavy slow training what we're doing is we're getting the sliding of the collagen molecules at the muscle end of the tendon that's going to allow us to break cross links at the muscle end of the tendon that means the muscle end of the tendon is going to be a little bit stiffer. doesn't mean the tendon or the muscle or the muscle tendon unit is going to be less stiff because as you're doing the heavy strength training, you're also giving a stimulus to the matrix and the muscle that's going to make that stiffer. So, so overall, if we took out the whole muscle and tendon, you might actually see an increase in stiffness, but the muscle end of the tendon is going to decrease in stiffness just a little bit. And it's not necessarily enough to decrease performance, but it will potentially impact that. Now, when we do fast training, we what's happening is because it's a viscoelastic tissue, the collagen in the tendon is stiffer. So instead of having that sliding, because the collagen molecules are working like individual molecules, what you get is that as you move faster and faster, the collagen molecules work together as a sheet instead of as individual molecules. And when they're working together as a sheet, you're not sliding them past each other, so you're not breaking any crosslinks. When we do any type of exercise, concentric, eccentric, fast, slow, doesn't matter, you get an increase in the enzyme that makes crosslinks. So when you do slow exercise, you break crosslinks and then you start making new ones, but you don't make as many as you've broken, so your overall stiffness over time will decrease. When you're doing really fast movements on a low weight, now what you're doing is you're not breaking crosslinks during the exercise, and then you're adding more crosslinks afterwards, so over time you're going to get stiffer. Okay, and the other thing that happens because when we're doing fast movements, by the definition, those fast movements are against a lighter weight. And that means that our muscle, if that's the only thing it's exposed to, is going to get less strong over time. So now we've got a stimulus by doing these fast, fast movements where we're increasing stiffness of the tendon, decreasing the strength of the muscle. Now we're going to get into a point where the muscle is, is not as strong as the tendon is stiff, and that's when we get our muscle pulls. 
That's why when you get into the Olympics, if they happen as scheduled in 100 or so days, when we get to track and field in the men's 200, 400, you're going to see these guys pulling up with hamstring problems, pulls, because basically they've been trying to go as fast as possible so that they can maximize their performance for this one opportunity. And then they get a little bit tired, they overstride a little bit, they hit the ground, and the muscle isn't strong enough to stretch that tendon. And so instead of the, mus the tendon stretching, now the muscle stretches when it's at full length, and that's when we get those, those hamstring pulls. And again, it's going to happen in the men's because the women, because of the effects of estrogen, estrogen can directly inhibit that enzyme, which adds crosslinks. That's why they get more laxity in the knee and fewer muscle pulls. So we wouldn't expect it to happen as often in the, in the women's 200, 400, but we'd expect it to happen more often in the men's. Another thing you spoke about was the, the multiple hits per day. Is that something that you'd attest to in terms of encouraging people to do that and is, is there a, is there a time is there a time limit or maximum time minimum time that you'd recommend that yeah so so we definitely do that when we're coming back from injury because because we can get so this research comes back to some things that we did in in our little engineered ligaments and that's translated really nicely into the human recovery work that we've been doing and so what we found was that we've got a minimal effective dose of loading, which means the tendon stops feeling load after about 10 minutes. So the cells, it's like the tendon cells are maybe a 13 year old kid because they, they'll listen to you for a little while and then they stop listening to you entirely. And it takes them a while before they're gonna listen to you again. So, so they're more like 13 year olds who still listen a little bit. A 16 year old doesn't listen at all. So, so now that that 13 year old is gonna listen to you our tendon cells for about 10 minutes of activity. And then after that, you can continue to be active, but it's gonna not pay any attention. So, so it got all the signal it's gonna get from that 10 minutes. And then what we showed is it takes about six to eight hours to recover that ability to signal again. And so, yeah, you can do two bouts um, or three bouts a day if you're, if you're in recovery and you're really dead set on recovering as fast as possible. What we do is a, a morning session, which is five to 10 minutes of activity. And it could just be range of motion activity where you're just getting basic load through the tendon. We're gonna wait six to eight hours, so around noon then. We're gonna do another 10 minutes of activity, wait six to eight hours at, at night before bed. And all of those three bouts are going to give you a, that minimal effective dose, which is gonna give you the signal to adapt as quickly as possible without giving you all of the extra mechanical load that comes with longer periods of training. And then what we do is we go from those three bouts, we're gonna progressively increase the length of one of those bouts because we have to increase cardiovascular fitness and muscular fitness, so endurance capabilities. And as we do that, we're just gonna keep the initial two other bouts as protective for the connective tissue. And then as we progressively increase the length of that main session, what we're going to do is we're going to then slowly go into a two session a day period where one is a protective session for the ten, for the for the connective tissue the other is a session for tactical for cardiovascular for for muscular fitness as far as as far as healthy individuals training yes you can do that as well if your sport is really about performance about really high intensity really quick movements you can do short periods of, of high intensity movements that are gonna last a very short period of time between, you know, even just a 10 minute session is gonna have enough to give you the signal that you need. So what you could do is you can easily say you've got a, a say you're a sprinter and you need, to, you need to be as explosive as humanly possible. Now what you're gonna do is you're gonna do one really explosive session in the morning, 10 minutes, bang, you're done, that's it, we're done. Then you're gonna come back and you can do your track work in the afternoon. It's gonna be a little bit more, but now that's six to eight hours later, the cells are able to respond again, but we've had two sessions instead of just one big session. Um, and, it, and we do see that that, that does provide a, an extra stimulus for adaptation. Mm -hmm. One last thing to, or a couple of last things to, to put to you, Keith. I know you, um, you've got things to do this morning, but importance of nutrition, I think I found this fascinating. Importance of nutrition, in the return to play process based on your work and your, your, your thoughts. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that? So there, what we've seen is that, um, and this again comes back to our engineered ligament work where we were, 
we noticed that when we increase the amount of proline and we increase the ascorbic acid in the media of our of our cells, they actually got a whole lot stronger. The ligaments did, and so we I just went and said, okay, what? How do you? What's a what's a food that's rich in proline and glycine? And of course, collagen or gelatin comes up. And so we did the first study on this in in humans with Greg Shaw of the Australian Institute of Sport. And what we showed is that when you had um, 15 grams of gelatin an hour before you did six minutes of jump rope, again, minimal effective dose of, of loading to load the bone to give us a stimulus for adaptation. What we found is that when we did that every six hours, we saw an increase in collagen synthesis just by doing jump rope every six hours. And then we saw a further increase when we had the 15 grams of gelatin. So it, it does look like that the, the collagen synthesis component can be stimulated by by um, collagen or, or hydrolyzed collagen or gelatin. We've just finished a study that we're, we're trying to get, uh, we're, we're in the second revision in, in the paper. And, and what we've done there is we've given, um, we've given hydrolyzed collagen or a placebo control to our, our American football team here at the University of California, Davis, when they were doing their strength training. So this is the off season, they're doing heavy strength training. And like we've said, Heavy strength training actually decreases rate of force development because all you're doing is moving slow. And, and so even when you try and include some ballistic movements, that's still a dominant thing when you lift really heavy for a number of days. But when we included the gelatin there, what we saw was that we actually didn't see as big a decrease in rate of force development and the rate of force development recovered much, much faster to the point where at the end of the study, the group that was in the, the hydrolyzed collagen um, group had actually improved uh, performance as far as their eccentric uh, their eccentric rate of force development for, for a counter movement jump. For a lot of these performance measures, their maximal isometric strength, they actually saw an increase in, in their rate of force development there as well. So you can see a performance benefit potentially to the collagen as well. Uh, one of the things we're working on right now is, is a little bit disappointing because um, Basically, what we're what we're discovering, and this went back to um, I had a postdoc who was who had seen something in the skin, and then we went back to some of the old research we had done, and sure enough, we we'd found that caffeine can inhibit um, collagen synthesis. So what we had been telling people to do is because you're taking the collagen an hour before you do your training, you can just put it into your to your um, to your pre-workout supplement, which often has a a big dose of caffeine in it, about three mg per kg. But it seems like that caffeine potentially could be inhibiting collagen synthesis. And, and so I don't know if it's enough where that caffeine is actually going to circulate enough to have that effect in vivo. But at least in, in our in vitro studies, we can show a dose-dependent decrease in collagen synthesis with caffeine. And our engineered ligaments are actually, you know, some of the work that I did a few years ago showed that they're actually about half as strong as the ligaments that were grown without caffeine. So, so now what we're doing is we're we're maybe shifting how we're how we're doing the 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 um the pre-workout supplement so we're trying not to give it directly with caffeine because again we're trying to target the the nutrition to where we're going to be using it so we take it an hour before we do the loading that's a way that you can kind of deliver it into the areas that are going to be loaded where you want the where you want the extra glycine and proline and all of these collagen uh, essential amino acids to be. And, and so we don't necessarily want to have caffeine together with it at that time because we don't want them going together to the tendon because we're going to see less collagen synthesis than if it was just the, if it was just the, the collagen alone or even if you know the, the, the caffeine seems to be inhibiting it below baseline levels. Mm-hmm. One thing I was going to ask, and this is my last point, I promise. I probably should have asked you during the return to play section the principles of rehabbing the, the a tendon is that different for different tendons it's a great question we haven't seen any difference between the tendons we've looked at we've actually even used a similar protocol to regenerate the patellar femoral um cartilage so we had we had an, uh, an nba basketball player who had, had eroded the patellar femoral cartilage to the point where it was very very there was obvious um mri data that said that there wasn't much left but we were able to regenerate that pretty fully using kind of a compression 
relaxation, compression, relaxation an hour after we had given some hydrolyzed collagen and, and vitamin C. And so, so it's a way that if you can get the load through the tissue and you can get the nutrient in there and you can kind of get it to flow in through so the cells are getting the stimulus they need. In the case of cartilage, it's compression. In the case of tendon, it's tension. And then you're giving that in association with providing the amino acids necessary. You can see increases in collagen synthesis, whether it's cartilage, whether we've seen it in bone and we've seen it in tendon as well. And it didn't, doesn't seem to matter which tendon we're looking at. Awesome. Keith, thank you very much for last hour. If anyone's got any questions who's listening, where's the best place for people to go? And is ResearchGate the best place for people to catch up with what you got going on work-wise? Yeah, so so you, you can do ResearchGate. Um, I normally will um, talk about things that we're doing in lab on Twitter as well. Okay. I'm at Muscle Science there. So, so I'll go on, on occasion, less and less now because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of just go on, say it. It just unadulterated <laughs> anger about stuff where people don't understand necessarily, but they, yeah, it's a very strong opinion for the amount of information that they really understand about it. Um, so that becomes a bit more problematic. Um, and so, so yeah, so I'll normally uh, put things out through there. Um, but yeah, Re ResearchGate is another good place. I tried and we try and have all of our papers be um, be open access um, so that everybody can take a look at them from the beginning. Um, so so that's a good place or, or you can just look me up on PubMed and it's it's fairly easy because my name is spelled kind of weird with the two A's. And so there's very few B-A-A-R's in the world. So all you have to do is spell it right and you should be good to find our work. Very politically correct when it comes to the description of what's going on Twitter these days. Very well done. Very well done. <laughs> Try my best. Absolutely. Well, Keith, thank you very much. Stick around. We'll have a little chat. But um, yeah, really appreciate your time. Thank you for giving up some of your morning. And uh, we'll, we'll catch up soon. Thank you very, no much, worries. very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Keith once again for giving up his time. So much knowledge there when it comes not only tendons, but when it comes to just injury prevention and performance as a whole. So also big thanks to you for giving up an hour of your time to dive into this episode with Keith. I hope you've got as much out of it as I did, and I'm sure you've got tons and tons of notes. I've got two pages right here in front of me. So thanks again for tuning in, and I will chat to you next week.